Well, good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we will jump into reviewing what we covered last week and then get into Exodus today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thanks for waking us up this morning. Uh, Thank you for bringing us together again to gather as your church here at Crossway to encourage one another, build one another another up, um, to push each other on toward love and good works. Lord, I pray for this hour, and I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and in our minds to give us a a deeper appreciation of your word and how we can dwell with you in your presence. And we thank you that you have made a way for that. I pray that you would enrich our view of your work throughout redemptive history. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's, let's start off by reviewing a little bit of what we covered last week, which was a lot, and admittedly, there was a lot that I was cutting out while we were going through it, um, which is fine. So what, what we want to do as we talk about um, the review is I put a picture here to kind of give you a visual of what was going on last week, at least up into the Tower of Babel, where it says Tower of Babylon on your sheet. Um, and there's a little bit more after that. It's really the, the, the story of the patriarchs that we kind of rush through at the end. But you see that basic storyline that's going on there, and it's anchored by the two mountains of Adam and the mountain of Noah. Um, in the beginning, we, we learned and we talked about, about how when God created the cosmos, he created his house, um, that the cosmos in, um, in general could be related to the tabernacle. God's dwelling place, Um, but then more localized, the Garden of Eden, that corresponds to something else within the tabernacle, which is what? The Holy of Holies. The Garden of Eden is the the Holy of Holies. It's a special place where there's an even more special presence that Adam and Eve were created to dwell with God in, and then you see kind of like that three-tier. We have the Holy of Holies, then we have outside of the Garden, then we have further east out, out out of Eden. And what we saw was that man was created to worship God in his Sabbath day rest, right? That was the intention of mankind, that mankind's made in the image of God in order to have a relationship with him, in order to dwell with him in his, in his presence and have perfect communion with him. But we've moved from life in the Garden of Eden, and then Adam and Eve are exiled, right? They're put outside of the gate. Um, the cherubim are guarding the gate. But then Cain... Um, after his sin, he's exiled even further east away from Eden. You can see there in that picture, he starts his own city. Um, and then after some time, mankind falls further into sin, and then God sends the flood. But then he saves a family out of the flood, and that's Noah's family. And one thing that we skipped over that um, we probably should have stopped at is when we read in, in Psalm, I think Psalm 25, about... Um, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord, the kind of person that shall ascend the mountain of the Lord. Um, Noah fits that description perfectly as someone who's blameless and righteous in God's sight, right? So Noah is kind of this person that, that, that can actually um, live righteously and, and, and ascend the mountain. And so we see with Noah is that his family saved through the ark, and we talked a little bit about similarities between the ark and the tabernacle, both being buildings that had specific instructions, both having a gate, um, and, and more similarities there. The ark is then pl- uh, uh, planted on top of Mount Ararat. So Noah, as this kind of Adamic figure, starting over again on a mountain in the same vicinity of Eden, 
But is he the one that we're looking for? No, he's not the one that we're looking for. A few scenes later, we have the Tower of Babylon, or the Tower of Babel, people gathering from the east. They build a tower to the heavens, want to make a name for themselves rather than worship and glorify the God who made, the God who made them. And what does God do with them? He exiles them even further, confuses their tongues. But God still has the same desire to dwell with mankind, right? The rest of, of the story of Genesis from the patriarchs, we have a picture of Abraham that God covenants with and says, I'm going to give you this land in Canaan. And the movement from Genesis, uh, for the rest of Genesis, is, is, is this movement from Canaan, where Abraham is supposed to dwell, um, to Egypt, down to Egypt. And so the overall movement of, of Genesis is we start with life in God's dwelling place in the, in, the, in the Holy of Holies, which is the Garden of Eden, and it ends with the burials of, of, of Jacob and the burial of Joseph in Egypt, and we're going to find out later that they end up, uh, that Israel ends up in slavery. So we start with life in the presence of God, exile, 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 away from the presence of God. And so whereas Genesis, this is on your sheet now, uh, whereas Genesis is the story of humanity being exiled further and further away from the presence of God, Exodus is the story of God making a way for them to dwell in his presence once again. So we have this tension, this story of Genesis moving away from the presence of God. How is God going to make a name for himself? How is, he gonna, how is he going to make a name for Abraham? How is he going to keep his promises? How is he going to um, defeat the serpent in the Garden of Eden? How is he going to restore fellowship with humans? Exodus is, is beginning to show us how he's going to do that. And so in our overview of Exodus, we will see that Israel is saved out of Sheol or Egypt. Sheol, the place of the dead. Egypt is that, the, the representation of Sheol for them through the waters and to a mountain, a reversal of the narrative thus far. So let's talk a little bit about the structure of Exodus before we jump into some specifics. Um, there's a couple different ways that you can break down Exodus. One way is just to break it up into two parts. Exodus 1 through 15 pertain to the actual exodus of Egypt, or of, of Israel out of Egypt. So those are the events uh, that, will, that you read about the plague and, and uh, the plagues and God calling Moses to lead his people out. Uh, the Passover, all those things are in chapters 1 through 15. And then Exodus 16 through 40 pertain to the, the Mount Sinai covenant and the building of the tabernacle. So you have the journey to Mount Sinai. And then in chapter 25, you have the instructions on, on how to build the tabernacle all the way to chapter 31. And then there's a really important event that happens between 30, 31 and 35. And then chapter 35, um, the, the, rather than the instructions of how to build the tabernacle, now you have the actual building of the tabernacle. And remember, when we talked about the structure of the Pentateuch in general, Mount Sinai is very central to what happens within the Pentateuch, right? From Exodus 19... To Numbers 10, including all of Le Leviticus, we're at Mount Sinai. So it's a significant location um, for the people of Israel. <clears throat> so that's a basic way of, of dividing up the book, um, verse, chapters 1 through 15, 16 to 40. Another way, and following kind of the imagery and the cosmology that we've been talking about as far as the mountain, the waters, life in God's presence, is to break it up in, in, into three parts. So you have Exodus out of Egypt, that's part one. The cosmogenic correspondence is through the waters, and that's 15 chapters. 
Part two is the Sinai covenant, and that's to the mountain is the correspondence there. That's 10 chapters. Part three is the tabernacle for life in God's house. So you can read it. Israel was saved through the waters to the mountain for life in God's house is the kind of the basic structure that we see within Leviticus, at least thematically, <clears throat> thematically. And that's the kind of structure that we're going to follow here, and that's what uh, Morales follows in his book. And I think it's helpful for understanding what's the whole purpose of redemption, what are we moving towards, and what is God doing in, in Exodus. And this is really setting up the narrative context even further for the book of Leviticus. We're going to see how this, cha- this, this book of Exodus leads us to the necessity to know how we can live in God's presence or how God can live with a sinful people, um, which is the question that Leviticus is going to address. So, <clears throat> Why, why is God redeeming Israel? What's the goal of redemption? You can cheat and look down on your sheet. Or you can give me some other good answers. Why is Israel being redeemed by God, or why is God redeeming Israel? What's the goal? He wants them to be his people. That's good. That's repeated throughout Exodus, it's repeated throughout the Old Testament, that you may be my people, right? What else? He's fulfilling his covenant to Abraham, yeah. Um, that he's going, to make a, he's going to make of Abraham a people, right? And he's going to give them a land. And that can't be fulfilled if they're, in, if they're slaves in Egypt, right? So he, he's got to prove out his faithfulness to the covenant. What else? It's for the sake of his name, absolutely. One of the things that, that, that rings out as very loudly a theme throughout the first um, 15 chapters of Exodus is that God wants Israel, God wants Egypt, God wants the nations to know who he is. And the way they're going to know who he is is all of these things that you just mentioned. You're going to keep his covenant. They're going to be his people. You're going to be their God. So let's look at just some examples of this. I I listed several passages there just to bring this out a little bit. We're not going to go through all these. We don't want to get too far into the weeds. But in the burning bush incident um, or event, uh, God is calling out uh, Moses. And I'm assuming a lot lot of um, kind of knowledge that you guys already have about the Exodus incident. We have Moses here, and he's going to be called by God to to lead his people out um, out of Egypt. Chapter 3 is where this happens. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> Chapter 3, 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God's also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So what does God want? He wants them to know who he is. I am who I am. There's a lot of theological, um, that's pregnant with with theology there. Um, And we're not going to get too deeply into that. But he wants them to know who's saving them, and he points to the patriarchs, which points to the covenant, this is my name forever, 
And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So he wants them to know who he is and remember his name. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel uh, go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So the main issue here being knowledge of God. Who is this? Who is this God? Chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So, so God wants them to know who is, who is saving them because he wants them to know who he is. This is, I am Yahweh, right? I am Yahweh. I am the God of my people. I'm the God who's going to keep my covenants and make a people for myself. So um, this is kind of the theme throughout. As, as God is unleashing the plagues on Israel, or on, on Egypt, sorry, not Israel, what is he demonstrating to the Egyptians and to Israel and to the nations that are on looking? What is he demonstrating to them? What are some things that you, they can learn about who God is? Did Egypt have their own gods? He's powerful. Yeah, that's a, that's a simple one, right? But it's true. This God of Israel is powerful. What else? He commands creation. So God is revealing a theology of creation in the plagues, right? God can manipulate all of creation, and he does so throughout the plagues. Who can manipulate creation besides the creator? So we're learning about who God is through the plagues. God is the creator who can manipulate all of creation. Good. It's the same thing, actually, that we learn in Jesus' ministry later on, right? As he, as he manipulates nature, and he's demonstrating what? He's sovereign over it. <clears throat> this is also what we learn about Yahweh. Egypt had other gods, didn't they? Yes. There are sorcerers that can mimic, yes. Mm-hmm. Up to a point, yes. Yeah, in all of these, like they can, they can mimic up to a point, and then they get to a point where they can't. And in all of these things, he's demonstrating, yes, you have these other gods that are supposed to be sovereign over these things. I'm actually going to exercise my power over them, right? Um, it's, it's interesting when you go to um, other, other countries, you deal with animistic people, and they have this kind of, they have this, their own cultic system, their own religious system. Um, it's animistic, so they believe that spirits govern all of, all of life, right? And they live in constant fear of these spirits, trying to appease them, because they think that these spirits are sovereign over the, the little mundane things of life. And if they don't do something right, then they're going to end up dying. And one of, the, one of the great testimonies of God's people, once the gospel's taken to them and they believe and they have a church there, is that they no longer live in fear of these spirits, and they can actually stand up and say, my God is, more, is sovereign over these things, not, not your little G gods. And they no longer live in fear because they know the one that has actual power and sovereignty over the elements, and that is God. God is demonstrating to Egypt, he's demonstrating to Israel that he is powerful over all of these things. So three lessons that we learn from um, about God's knowledge here is that God wants Israel to know that he is God. He wants Egypt to know 
um, that he is God. But then he also wants um, the nations to know. And we have, we have an example of this knowledge of God going out beyond the borders of even Egypt in the book of Joshua in a prostitute in Jericho, right? Who's that? Rahab. How does, how does, what does she know about Israel's God? He's powerful because he led them out of Egypt and defeated Egypt, right? So he knows, she knows the story about who God is, and she's outside of the borders. So God has this desire to share, to, to reveal <clears throat> knowledge of himself. Um, there's a little, I think I have a quote there for you at the, at the bottom of that section. In sum, through the Exodus, Exodus deliverance, the nations were to know Yahweh as the maker of heaven and earth, who had recreated a new humanity, Israel, in order to fulfill his original purpose, opening a way for humanity to dwell in his presence. Under the shadow of the Babylonian Tower of the Nations, scattered in exile, would behold a wonder. Israel redeemed to dwell with God. So that's where we are in the story so far. Um, Israel being saved out of Egypt in order to know God. Um, And not just know him, but to know him as their God who dwells with them in their presence. Another theme here that we're going to hit is, is the redemption, how they're saved, and that they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Um, turn in Exodus um, chapter 12. <clears throat> As you guys read through Exodus, there's like plague, 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 plague. It kind of moves fast through all the, all the plagues. But then we get to chapter 12, everything kind of slows down. And the reason why is because this had a very, a very uh, significant religious significance or had a big religious significance. Let me mix up my words here. Um, for Israel, as Moses is telling, um, as recounting the story to Israel. <clears throat> and so he's giving them all the theological um, implications. He's giving them a clear picture of what's going on in the Passover because it's something that they're supposed to be doing um, perpetually. This was a big event in the life of Israel. In the Passover, um, in the Passover, so before the Passover, let me, let me do this. Before the Passover, God sends out nine plagues in Israel, right? Now, did the Israelites need to do anything to be protected by those plagues? The last one, the, the Passover, right? But before the Passover, God just made distinction, Right? So he's cursing, throwing plagues on the Egyptians, and he's protecting his people throughout the, 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 the tribulation that's going on there, right? So he's protecting them. And so by seeing that, you're saying, okay, God is clearly protecting, he's watching over this people here. Everyone else is being inflicted by these plagues. But for the Passover, Israel actually needs to do something in order to receive the, the redemption. They actually need to be redeemed in order to be passed over. In this, um, in this story. So what is necessary? Um, we can look in the text, but let's, <clears throat> I think we already know some of these themes. What is necessary for them to do in order for the, uh, the Lord or the destroyer to pass over their home and not take the firstborn from their home? So they had to slaughter a lamb. They had to roast it, good. <clears throat> or I think they could boil it too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roasted on a fire, yes. 
Do not eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water. Good. Okay, so roasted. Good job, Reuben. Okay, so they had to kill a lamb. What kind of lamb? Perfect lamb. Good. Un, uh, unblemished, year old. Roasted. What, what did you say, Liz? <clears throat> yeah, unblemished. Anything else? Unleavened bread. What's, I was starting to say blood. So what, what, what do they do with the blood? Good, they painted over the doorpost. With what? You guys remember this? Branches of hyssop. Good. So they splattered it on the door. <clears throat> so there's some significant things going on here in the Passover that Israel is learning about um, how God is going to save them out of Egypt. And, the, and then the themes that are found here in Exodus are also repeated throughout Leviticus. And then we see them come, in, come to culmination in the New Testament as Jesus fulfills these things, right? Um, the picture of, or the lamb that was sacrificed in their stead is a picture of what? Christ, yes, that's, that's the big picture, yes. It's a smaller, it's a sacrificial atonement, right? Some, an animal needs to die in their stead. So we have this substitutionary atonement thing going on even within the Passover. <clears throat> and that's, that's very clear here. The lamb dies so that the firstborn son may live. And that's, very, very, that's a very important theme that comes out very clearly in, in the Passover. <clears throat> There's another, um, another important lesson that we learn here, uh, that salvation in, includes atonement, but then also purification. And this is signified by the use of the hyssop used to spread the blood on the doorpost. And here's why. So if you're reading throughout, we're going to touch on this more in, in Leviticus um, in more detail, but blood manipulation was often utilized for uh, ritual purgation or purification. Hyssop is also commonly associated with ceremonial purification in the Pentateuch. <clears throat> Even in Psalm 51, go turn to Psalm 51 real quick. Psalm 51, uh, David in his um, Psalm of Repentance here <clears throat> uses the language of, of a hyssop, of hyssop to, to purify him Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I, may, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So hyssop is associated throughout Scripture as having a purifying, um, uh, representing purification, bringing purity. <clears throat> go, back to, uh, go back to Exodus um, chapter 12. So, um, Morales in his book also makes another connection to Ezekiel's, <clears throat> Ezekiel's temple. In Ezekiel 40 to 48, the, the, the end times temple, you guys know what I'm talking about. There's a big old section there. He's got a lot of description about this temple. And in, in uh, Ezekiel 45, 19, um, it describes the priests applying the blood 
uh, to the temple's doorposts and gateposts as well. And so he thinks there's probably some play here on um, this gate liturgy, this, this entrance into the temple liturgy that would, um, that would be at play even in the, the end times temple as it's described in, in uh, Ezekiel. And so this is a very, so the, what we're trying to show here is that there's a lot of kind of priestly language that's used here. We have atonement so far. We have purification with the hyssop. Then we have consecration, which is signified by the eating of the meat. So the meat was set apart as holy. And if you eat the meat, that's, that signifies that you're becoming holy as well. You're, you're consecrating yourself as you eat the meat that's consecrated, right? Um, it's, a similar, it's kind of like the opposite of, of when you eat something that's unclean, what happens to you? You, you become unclean, right? So it's the, kind of the reverse. If, if you eat something that's consecrated to the Lord, then you're consecrating yourself to the Lord also as a symbol of that. So, so we have atonement, purification, consecration, a lot of this, this priestly stuff that's going on. The entire Passover ritual, if we compare this to Leviticus 8, which we will in the future, if we compare this to Leviticus 8 and even Exodus 29, this is very similar, a very similar event to the consecration of, of Aaron um, and his sons, the priests that become the, high, that become the priests. So what's the picture here? Israel, they're still in slavery in Egypt, but later on, what are they called? What does God call Israel? Not slaves, but uh, a royal priesthood. They're, they're a kingdom of priests. And here they are, slaves in Egypt doing priestly things. It's, out, it's as if God is preparing them to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart unto God. That's what's going on here. So they're doing this, this, this priestly um, activity, we have sacrificial substitutionary atonement, we have the purification consecration, and through these things, God is going to save them out of, out of Egypt. So, redeemed for the knowledge of God, redeemed by the blood, and ultimately, this knowledge of God is supposed to well up into worship, that leads us to our next section. So, redeemed for worship. Um, Yes, God redeems them so that he may be known by Egypt, by Israel, by the nations, that they would know that he is Yahweh. <clears throat> but even from the very beginning, and let's look at Exodus chapter 4, even from the very beginning, um, Yahweh is, des is describing or giving this, this intention that he wants Israel to leave Egypt in order to hold feasts and festivals and to be able to worship him as his people. So his end here is not... is, is Yes, knowledge, but it's also, it's that knowledge that, that leads to the worship, to worship of Yahweh. So look at um, uh, chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 22 to 23. Back up to 21, just to start at the beginning um, of this paragraph, at least. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that, that, that he may serve me. That word there has the same root as worship. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It's really interesting. This is like way before the Passover, right? And he's already alluding to this um, way back in chapter 4. I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way to the Lord, the Lord met him and sought him to put him to death. And so um, he wants... Israel to be called out so that they would serve, uh, so that they would serve him outside of Egypt. Uh, Moses' song after being saved through the Red Sea reflects the purpose of God in redeeming Israel very clearly. 
This song reveals the theology of Exodus in short. So look at Exodus um, chapter 15, I believe. So they're saved out of Egypt through the waters, and we have Moses' song here. Let's just read this real quickly. We're doing on time, okay. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has thrown, was, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is Yahweh. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my heart, my hand shall destroy them, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. <clears throat> Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which, you have, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Lots of clear, vivid imagery used in that passage, right? They're saved through the waters. They're sa- and and. and the, the, the attitude that Egypt's army, that Pharaoh's army had toward Israel, they're going to overtake them. They're going to destroy them. And then it says, you, you, you caused the wind to come, and you separated the waters for us, and you caused the earth to swallow them up. They passed through the waters, and it says in verse 17, <clears throat> you will bring them in and plant them on where? On your own mountain. Which mountain? It's a trick question because there's a lot of <clears throat> scholarly debate as far as what mountain, mountain uh, Moses is talking about here. But I think the reason why he doesn't say is because it's not really important, is it? If we understand the, the imagery of mountain correctly in the Pentateuch, what is, what, is the, what is the mountain of the Lord? It's God's dwelling place. Signified and shown physically in the Garden of Eden, the first mountain from which the waters flowed, right? Um, 
and other mountains throughout, throughout Genesis that we see as well. And they're going to be going towards which mountain? Which is the most immediate mountain that's next? Sinai, right? That's the next, that's the next kind of chapter. Not literally, but like they get there in a few chapters. So they go to Mount Sinai, but then when we talk about the Old Testament as a whole, what is the mountain that, that, that they're, crying to, they're crying out to be delivered to? Mount Zion. Mount Zion, okay? Um, <clears throat> and so we have this picture developing throughout, um, throughout Scripture that mount, the mountain, though, is, is really God's dwelling place. That's the theological significance of mountain, Right? So he, Moses has this clear theology here that God is saving them in order to bring them to the mountain. And what's the point of the mountain to dwell in their presence? It's, it's to worship him. It's for worship. That's where um, worship is centered. Okay, now they're brought to the mountain. Next section. Now they're brought to the mountain, Mount Sinai. Yes. I think, yeah, I think they're tied as well. Yeah, the rule of God. Someone also asked, um, <clears throat> there's a debate. What is the central motif to, to all of Scripture? What ties it kind of together? There's several answers to that that people have given, theologians have given, and especially in the last couple hundred years. Um, one of them is, is it's a kingdom motif. One of them is um, it's, a, it's the temple. It's God dwelling with man. It's... Redemption, that's the main thing. Everything ties into redemption. And then there's arguments that you can be had about all of those things. And then there's a view, that's my view. It's all of these things. Uh, so I kind of cheat and I take the simple view, which is, um, it's all of these things. I don't, I don't know that we can say that there's one center. But, but in all of those things, they're, they're, you can't have a kingdom, biblically, apart from the cultic system of dwelling with God. The kingdom, the king, it's a broken kingdom if you don't have God at the center right, in the religious system at the center. You also don't have um, a cultic system uh, working biblically if you don't have the kingdom working in within it as well, which is kind of what Leviticus is doing. It's God is setting up this kingdom, <clears throat> and he gives them laws to govern this kingdom, right? Um, and before they have the kingdom, they don't, they don't have the laws. So there's, they all, they're all kind of intermixed is what I'm saying. So yeah, I think there's definitely that theme as well. But right now, we're just kind of developing this theme, this motif, and I wouldn't say... Everything in the Bible is tethered to this one thing. I think they're all related, um, but I think there are several big motifs that we can draw out here as well. But so far what we've been developing is that, um, and I think we'll see in, in a second, is that this mountain theme that's being developed here is, um, has a lot of priestly, religious um, connotations to it, and we'll see that as we develop a little bit more. Okay, so... So they're brought to the mountain. There are several things that demonstrate the holiness of this mountain. Look at chapter 19. Chapter 19 is when they get to the, to the mountain. So first off, what we see in, um, in pertaining to the, the holiness of the mountain is that or we learn of the holiness of the mountain because there are uh, warnings not even to touch it. Look at 12, verses 12 and 13. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So don't even touch it. 
Um, there's, a, there's a tripartite, three-part division of the mountain as well. You have the base, see that in verse 12. You have the midsection in verse 24. <clears throat> you have the top of the mountain as well. Um, that becomes significant because in a, in a later scene, um, you have Aaron and his sons and Moses kind of um, at, the, at, the, at the base on the mountain, but then Moses is called to go to the top of the mountain. So you have this, these, these three sections um, that I think correspond to the tabernacle later as well. You have the need for consecration in verses 10 and 11. Um, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So there's a need for consecration. And then there's a need for a mediator. There's a need for a mediator. Not just anybody can go up. There needs to be a mediator that stands between Israel and the Lord. Verse 20, <clears throat> the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and, Lord called, and the Lord called to Moses, or called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. That's a significant event here. That's significant, because all throughout the story of, of, of Genesis, we have humanity being exiled further and further away from God's mountain, the Garden of Eden, his presence. Now you have God saving Israel out of Egypt, bringing them to the mountain, and here he is. He says, he, it's, it tells about him coming down to the mountain. So God now manifests his presence on the mountain, then he calls Moses to come up to meet with him. That's, that's significant in the history of Israel, and we don't want to miss that. So we have the need for a mediator. So for all these reasons, this, this mountain is holy, the holy mountain. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who's the one that's allowed to ascend? Look at Exodus chapter 24. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 24. Let's, let's, um, let's read portions of this. We'll kind of skip around just because I don't want to get um, too bogged down here for the sake of time. 24 verse 1, then he said to Moses, um, this is the Lord speaking, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. So he's given them permission to, to come up. <clears throat> Moses alone shall come near, the, near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the, of the Lord, and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And the Lord wrote down all the words of the Lord, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of, his, of the people of Israel who burnt offerings, who offered up burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Um, keep going, look at verse 9. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. They were under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the, into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. 
Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Do you see any significance there? The six plus one. <clears throat> the six plus one, which is six days in the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, right? And the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Some scholars uh, describe this as kind of like a re-entering into Eden, because you have the six days plus one, which is a clear, um, this is clearly reminiscent of the creation week. And then, on, and then six days plus one, Moses goes into the cloud to commune with God, to meet with God there. So who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord here? Only one person. Who is it? Who is it? Moses. Moses, right? So Moses alone shall ascend. So we have that picture there on, on the sheet, just kind of give you a picture of um, a representation of what's going on here. Moses ascends. He's the mediator. Um, what's really interesting in this next section, we're going to talk about him as mediator um, briefly before we, get, before we wrap up here. <clears throat> What's really, what's really interesting is in, in, in the next section of Exodus, in chapter 25, in chapter 25, we have the beginning of the instructions of how to build the tabernacle. So you have the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, um, the, the table for the bread, the golden lampstand. Then in 26, you really get into the tabernacle. All these instructions about how to build the tabernacle. Look at, verse, um, look at chapter, um, I think it's chapter 31. Chapter 31, it kind of rounds out that section with <clears throat> the uh, instructions on the Sabbath. And then, so after this description of, of God's house, you have this instruction of the Sabbath. Um, and then, after that, what happens? Moses goes up to the mountain, and what happens while he's gone? Yeah, they start to devolve. <laughs> Israel starts to go backwards, right? Man, this Moses guy, he's taking a long time. Let's worship. How do we know how to worship? Well, we've seen this done before. Let's build a golden image, and let's start worshiping Yahweh through that golden image. So Moses is up on the mountain. He's got this stuff going on behind him, and it's almost as if God's like, hey, turn around. Your people are being stupid, and guess what, guess what I'm going to do because of their idolatry? What's he going to do? What's he threaten? He says he's going to blot them out. He's gonna, he says, I'm going to pour out my judgment and my wrath on you. Um, and what does Moses say? How does Moses respond? He responds by, trying, by reminding the Lord of his covenant that he made to Abraham. You, you're supposed to keep this promise. You don't want to be known by the nations as someone who didn't keep his promise. You don't want to bring, Egypt, you don't want to bring us out of Egypt and then destroy us here. That's going to be looked bad on you. Um, he appeals to the God's covenant that he has made in his faithfulness. Um, he also ends up offering up himself as um, sacrifice. Don't blot them out. Take me instead. Look at the end of, um, of chapter 32. 
The next day, uh, chapter, uh, verse 30. <clears throat> the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. This is after a section where he comes down and he's, he's teed off and he you know, grinds, the, grinds the, um, the golden calf, makes them drink the water with it. Um, he hires the Levites to, to go through and purify the people by killing um, the men. And so, so I mean, this is a very dramatic scene. I mean, if you, you, if you turn Exodus, if you had a real Exodus movie, this would be gruesome. After this, he says, I'm going to go up and I'm going to see if I can make atonement for your sin. <clears throat> so Moses, verse 31, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. So one of the things that we learned here about what it means to mediate to be mediator between God and man, is, is it's, he mediates by placing himself in this kind of sacrificial position. He gives himself, he puts himself on the line here. Blot me out instead of them. Verse 33, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of the book. But now, go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you, Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit uh, their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. <clears throat> uh, chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, uh, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Go up to a land fill, uh, flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So here's what, here's what happens. Moses goes before God. He says, take me instead. God says, mm, no. So then he, then he says, I'm still going to go before you. I'm going to take you. You're right. You know, I need to keep, I need to keep my covenant to you. Um, I'm going to go out before you. The, uh, the angel of the Lord's going to go out before you. He's going to defeat all your enemies. You're going to live in this land flowing milk and honey. But guess what? I'm not going to dwell with you. I'm not going to dwell with you. Now, does Moses say, all right, sounds good. So, you're keeping your promise. We're going to live in the land. <clears throat> sounds good. No. He doesn't respond like that at all, does he? Um, look down at, uh, at, at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, he wants to know more of this plan. I know, that, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So he's talking about himself. He knows that he has favor in God's sight, that he wants, he, that if God had it his way, well, I shouldn't say it like that. We're speaking humanly about God, right? There's lots of theological Implications and way to, and we need to work through this more theologically precise if we want to say everything correctly. But um, you, God has God has or uh, Moses has favor in God's sight. God said earlier that He would blot out Israel and He would start over with just Moses. <clears throat> but then He's saying you're going to go into the land and Moses wants to know more of this plan. Um, Thirteen. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to. Find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So he's like, hey, remember, it's not just me. This nation is your people. This nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will, will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. 
<clears throat> wait, God just said, my presence will go with you. And Moses is saying, well, if your presence won't go with me, which one is it? Did God, what did God say? God said, my presence will go with you, Moses. Moses is saying, I want your presence to go with us. There's a, there's a second uh, person singular that, Paul, that God uses here. My presence will go with you. You have found favor in my sight. Moses wants God to go with his people. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people? See the emphasis on I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And then so God agrees. Moses appeals to the covenant and, and he points to the heart of the covenant. It's not the this, this superficial surface level stuff. What's the blessing that, that, that God promised to Abraham in the, in the Abrahamic covenant? Make a name, <clears throat> but he give him a, a land, right? Give him a land. What's the point of the land? Is it just land? God says, I'll give you the land. Moses says, no. We want the land and you in it with us. What's the heart of the covenant? God dwelling with his people in the land. Land, no presence of God. That's not, that's not the heart of the covenant. So Moses appeals to God's covenant and says, no, we want, I want you to go with us. You need to be with us. So it's, it's, there's a big tension point here, and we're going to wrap up very quickly mainly because we've already talked a lot about these things um, as far as the tabernacle relating to the mountain of God. And we can touch on it a little bit more next week. <clears throat> so what do we have here so far is that we have Egypt, uh, Israel being saved out of Egypt through the water, by the, by, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, for the purpose of knowledge of God, for worship, that in order to meet with God on his mountain, we need a, we need a mediator. Can't do it on our own. <clears throat> that mediator is going to be sacrificial, offering up himself. He's going to mediate this, this covenant. And we, we learn that the heart of the covenant is not just a land. The, the heart of the covenant is a land in the presence of God who dwells among them. They were given instructions on how to build the tabernacle. <clears throat> now they're going to actually build the tabernacle. But, but what we end up seeing here in the tabernacle, just really briefly, just to state the point and not really argue it here, we'll, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it next week, the tabernacle then becomes, it's not on the mountain, but it becomes the theological mountain of God, the place where they, where they will now meet with God, where God will dwell amongst his people, his dwelling place. Um, and we'll discuss that a little bit more um, next week, um, some of the more of the ins and outs of, of the comparison between the tabernacle and the mountain of God. We've already seen the comparison between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden and the, and the cosmos in, in general. <clears throat> we'll draw some more next week. But here's the movement that we see so far in the story, which brings about Leviticus from the garden to Egypt. Out of Egypt, through the waters, by the blood, to the mountain, to meet with God. <clears throat> from the mountain to the tabernacle amongst the people, amidst the people. Then the question becomes, 
if we know the holiness of God, if we understand the holiness of God, the tension then is, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And how can sinful people meet with a holy God? And that's what the whole book of Leviticus is about. So that's the narrative context that we set up for the book of Leviticus. <clears throat> and, and within that context, realizing that the goal is dwelling with God in, in communion with him, um, that's going to help us understand kind of the ins and outs, the different, the, 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 all the laws and rituals that we get lost in in the book of Leviticus, if we can set it within that context. that makes sense? Okay. That's all we got for today. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll uh, eat some donuts. <clears throat> Father, I thank you so much for um, your heart to save sinful humans and your heart to dwell with humans, your, create, your creatures forever. Out of the abundance of your love, we experience grace and mercy and kindness. We get the gospel, Jesus, who came to be the greater Moses, the second Adam, to bring us back into perfect fellowship with you, to stand in the gap and to take our sin to take the wrath and judgment that we deserve as it was poured, on, poured out on him on Calvary. And we thank you for the resurrection that promises us life eternal and life now and a future resurrection and fellowship with you forever in your presence. Lord, I pray that we would meditate on the gospel this morning and be encouraged by it. Um, I pray for our service as we um, prepare to worship together in song and prayer and giving and the preaching of your word and the reading of your word, that you would be magnified today as we do all of these things, that we would not simply go through the motions this morning, that we would do church actively, and that your love would be evident to any guest that comes in, and that they would know you, and that we would grow in our knowledge of you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.